welcome to another episode of Toho Yaro, a Japanese film club podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Scott Dryman. Today with my fellow co-host, as always, Alex Kazanis. Hello. And Joey Weiser. Today we're going to be talking about uh, 2017's Blade of the Immortal, our most recent movie. Uh, Takeshi Miike's 100th uh, film he's directed since his debut in 1991. And, uh, yeah, did you guys... Uh, I Normally we would ask if anybody has history with this movie, but since it just came out a few months ago, it's hard to really hmm. say we've got any kind of long history. Yeah, um, I, I had seen it uh, in the theater. It had a very short theatrical run. Um, I think maybe it was just only one night in Atlanta. I'm not sure. But yeah, I'd seen it. And uh, it's a pretty great experience to see it with the crowd. You know, um, wasn't quite sure what people would make of it. But almost immediately after, I heard some dudes behind me saying, like, <laughs> best movie ever or whatever. So <laughs> it, was, it was nice to hear that people wow. dug it. Glad the dude bros enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hadn't seen it until, um, until, um, well, the other day. So, yep. And I've never read the manga or seen the anime. Yeah, Jerry, do you oh, have yeah, any experience with the manga? I guess I should say that. Yeah, I, I read the manga in high school. I haven't read it all. I probably, whatever was out in the sort of like late 90s, early 2000s. So like probably just the first few volumes. And it's been so long that I hardly remembered it. So, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, based on the manga of the same name by Hiroki Samura. Yeah, the the manga is great. Like, uh, I just kind of I think uh, it had a pretty irregular and slow release schedule, um, as was the way back then, and I just kind of fell out of the habit of reading it. Yeah, looking at it, it doesn't seem that long, but it came out over the period of twenty years, so it seems to to be pretty slow drip as it came out. Uh, it's a, a seinen manga instead of uh, uh, shonen, like a lot of these live-action anime adaptations tend to be. Um, the uh, This was adapted for a screenplay by Tetsuya Oishi. Uh, music was... <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, music was uh, composed by Koji Endo, and we have a, a special theme song performance by Miyavi, who is a Japanese... Uh, I guess, pop, kind of rock, multi-talented performer that's very popular. Uh, the, most of the crew for this film seems to be a lot of people from uh, 13 Samurai, which I still have not seen, unfortunately. But uh, Koji Endo did the music for that as well. I, uh, some of the other uh, crew worked on that as well, including the director of photography, whose name I have misplaced. 13 Samurai or 13 Assassins? Or 13 Assassins, sorry. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, yeah, Mike Staple. Um, this, this film is kind of interesting to me. I haven't seen much of Mike's more recent output, and this seemed comparatively subdued mm-hmm. uh, compared to a lot of stuff and, and kind of uh, more palatable to a wider audience. But we can get more into that after we get through the everything else. Um, the, the cast, none of them particularly stood out to me as having been in anything else I had seen with the exception of Chiaki Kuriyama as Hyakurin, who, uh, she shows up for maybe like two minutes of screen time and four spoken lines, which was a bit of a disappointment, but, uh, she's also in 
probably best known as uh, Gogo Yubari in Kill Bill and uh, also in uh, Battle Royale. Mm-hmm. Uh, our uh, our main main two main characters, uh, Manji, uh, is played by Takia Kimura, and uh, Ren is played by Hana Sugasaki, who, who I did not look up the cast until after the movie, and for the longest time I thought she was an actual child actor, uh, oh. only to learn afterwards that she was actually twenty years old. So, wow! But she had yeah, that's a yeah, that's interesting. She. I think she had done some voice acting work. Like she was Mar- uh, Mary and Mary and the Witch's Flower, and she was in when Marnie was there, right? Mm. Yeah, it, it was interesting though because I was when I thought she was a child actress, I I was impressed by her performance throughout the movie, but I was more impressed when I thought she was actually much younger than she was. But <laughs> still, does That's an true. incredibly good job. Um, so uh, onto the the film itself, Blade of the Immortal. Oh, oh, well, oh I, go ahead. I do want to mention Takuya Kimura is like a former member of SMAP. And oh, really? I did not know was that. Howl and Howl's Moving Castle, and then Redline, uh, the main character in that. Somehow um, I missed those looking through his credits. And he uh, he um, was in a movie I haven't seen that I'd like to see called Love and Honor. That's directed by Yoji Yamada of Torasan fame. Okay. But, um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, the rest of the cast seemed to be mostly just modern, uh, contemporary film actors and a lot of, uh, kind of Japanese pop film type things. Um, so Blade of the Immortal is the story of a, uh, a swordsman who thanks to being given magical blood worms by a Buddhist nun, uh, cannot die. The uh, the title of the manga in, in Japanese is uh, Mugen no Junin, which uh, I think tra- translates as Resident of the Infinite or of Infinity. Hmm. And there's a lot of imagery and talk about uh, uh, living forever and, and the infinite throughout the series. Uh, in the manga, he originally has the... Uh, the the main character is named Manji. He originally has a Manji on the back of his uh, kimono, which uh, is generally identified as a swastika in Western culture. For the uh, for this film adaptation, they changed the Manji to just the uh, character for Man, which means uh, ten thousand, but is basically synonymous with uh, many or countless. So and yeah, and the I shape found that of it. interesting. Yeah, and sh- his name in the credits is written that way too, and I'm pretty sure in the manga, it, it's written as Manji, as in the like swastika character. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because the, even the shape of of the the Mon character is still pretty evocative of the same shape, especially the way it's stylized on his back. Mm. So it looks very similar to the manga, even though it's different. Uh. Uh, character and is still evocative of of the same thing yeah the uh the old dark horse comics used to sort of go bend over backwards uh to every issue started with an explanation of what the manji was versus swastika and they also uh when possible just rearranged panels instead of flipping them so that it wouldn't be reflective of a um nazi swastika that's an interesting touch yeah, it's it's worth noting not not always, but typically the the Buddhist manji is uh, 
oriented in the opposite direction of the Nazi swastika. Mm-hmm. Um, so going into the into the synopsis, we start the movie with this uh, black and white flashback that's very evocative of kind of older Chambara movies. Uh, a lot of quick cuts and the the kind of uh, sound effects of of sword battle that we've come to recognize as modern uh, modern viewers. Uh, Manji is busy dispatching a number of foes, uh, and he uh, looks around, turning a corner to find his younger sister Machi hiding under a bunch of things, and who she offers him a uh, a horse turd, saying, "I've made you a rice ball." Which is one of the few instances in this film of uh, Mike's kind of scatological humor. Mm-hmm. Which opening with that, I was expecting a little more of it. But like a, as we said earlier, it's uh, this movie is comparatively buttoned down compared to a lot of his work. But uh, through this sequence, we we uh, are, are first introduced to Yabikuni, the the Buddhist monk, and Manji explains that he. Uh, is is on the run after killing his superior and his uh, his superior's bodyguards, one of which was his sister's husband, which has driven her mad with grief, which is why she's acting so despondent and childlike. Uh, shortly thereafter, Manji is, uh, encounters a whole army of bounty hunters uh, who have uh, grabbed his sister and offer... To, to let his sister go free if he throws down his weapons. Uh, he throws down his weapons, and the head bounty hunter immediately kills his sister, which sends Manji into a rage as he slaughters the entire company of bounty hunters. Uh, and losing his hand in the process, getting wounded repeatedly across his face and eye, and uh, kind of upset, kind of upset, uh, just hopeless after having killed all these people with his sister dead. He has no reason to live, but uh, Yabikuni, the, the nun, stands over him and uh, decides to curse him with immortality by dropping these blood worms into a wound on his chest. And as they, uh, as we see them stitch his hand back together, which has been severed, uh, it, it reattaches and we transition from black and white into, cut, into color and get a late title card with blood splashing everywhere. That's mm-hmm. uh, super cool looking. Yeah. Uh, there we jump uh, 50 years later to see uh, young Ren, who looks identical to Machi, uh, training uh, in a sword school with her father and a bunch of adult male students. Uh, there's... It's shown that she's very tomboyish and doesn't like to be a proper lady. Her mother is a little disappointed by this, but it's it's clear both her parents are still pretty proud of her. When suddenly uh, these uh, all these this mishmash of weird swordsmen show up, identifying themselves as the Itoryu, which uh, are you guys familiar with the with the name Itoryu? Well, in One Piece, uh, <laughs> Itoryu is one sword style. Yeah, um, uh, that's that's, that's what it is. Uh, it's it's an actual like kind of broad school of of sword style in actual Japan, and what most of the the kind of kendo styles we recognize today are from. 
So I have to assume that because the the Itoryu, they identify themselves as being a sword school that is trying to unite all styles under one school that just encompasses uh, uh, ex- trying to excel and win no matter what, <laughs> rather than focusing on specific uh, doctrines or tradition. And so I have, yeah. (laughs) And so I have to assume the the title Itoryu is uh, is an ironic one because they're eschewing all of this tradition uh, Mm. in order to use any kind of weapon or any combination of weapons. Yeah, I like that. That's interesting. But uh, the their leader identifies themselves as uh, Kagehisa Anotsu and challenges the or. Tells the father he can either submit or uh, or fight him in one-on-one combat. And the father, despite being the master of a sword school, uh, is killed pretty effortlessly by Onotsu. And the rest of the gang proceeds to uh, take Rin's mother and rape her while one of the, the swordsmen kind of shuffles Rin off to the side, telling her to cover her ears and don't look because it'll haunt her forever. And then, uh, then they take Rin's mother and just leave her there with her dead father. Uh, jump forward from this very dark scene to a really lush green graveyard scene. And Yabikuni finds Rin and tells her to find the, an immortal swordsman who's wandering Edo. So Rin, after some looking and talking to, to random people, eventually finds uh, Manji's kind of weird hut that he has created off the outskirts of town. And after a pretty awkward scene where he tr- challenges her to like prove how serious she is about uh, wanting revenge, she starts undressing and he's like, no, no, don't get me wrong. Um, he eventually, he doesn't agree to be, become her bodyguard or seek vengeance with her, but he agrees to walk her back, which the, uh, this is yet another movie with some like, very uncomfortable sexual violence or threat thereof going on. And mm-hmm. so, which it, it, BK tends to use that a good bit, but it's, it's just a general trope in film that is, uh, it, it, I'm noticing it more and it's getting kind of tiresome, mm. but thankfully we, that this is to demonstrate that Manji is, is not a gross person like the rest of the, uh, yeah. you. So, uh, Manji agrees to, to walk bit Ren back to the village, and we have this weird abrupt cut, unless I miss something, where it's she's wearing this, uh, wrapped in this white sheet, and is walking at night when, uh, when the swordsman that pulled her aside to kind of hide her from her mother being brutalized, uh, starts reciting a poem and uh, we learn that his name is uh, Kuroi Sabato uh, who is a in, in full like samurai warlord garb with wrapped heads on each of his shoulder pads and yeah. I yeah I, I do like how the uh, the designs from the manga have been adapted into live action because they're with little exception, they're definitely identifiable as being, this is an, an 
a character design from a manga, mm-hmm. but are adapted in a way where it mostly seems plausible. Yeah, I really enjoyed that uh, aspect of it. Um, you could you could tell that uh, you know that there was some care being taken. Yeah, uh, and apparently uh, Mike is a big fan of the manga, and so this was kind of like this wasn't just he decided to pick a property out of a hat. This is something that he was actually pretty passionate about. And I feel like that, that kind of shows. Yeah. definitely. Uh, and I think it also helps that, that Simoto's art style is pretty realistic, mm-hmm. even though he's got some outlandish character designs. None of them are, are super cartoonish. So that yeah. probably, probably lends itself to being adapted live action as well. Yeah. This guy is super creepy. He's very yeah, he's, effective. He's been uh, been writing love letters to a child. Reveals that uh, he's got his her mother's severed head on one of his pauldrons, and uh, Manji jumps in to defend her. And we we get a like small taste of what his gimmick is that he can rotate his shoulders all the way around, and uh, he attacks Manji. Uh, while Manji is behind him, but uh, Manji still pretty quickly defeats him because he's immortal, and no matter what damage he takes, it doesn't really matter. Um, which it's very inconsistent throughout the movie how skilled Manji is as a swordsman because times when he's trying, he it, it's clear that he is very skillful, and then other times it seems like he has just given up on actually being good at fighting because he can take punishment and just walks into it to get attacks in. Yeah. It's very interesting. But, uh, so, uh, uh, Sabato is, is defeated. We kind of learn that, uh, Manji has a billion different weapons crammed up his sleeves that just <laughs> appear when needed. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Like um, Moose from Ronmo one half. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, uh, jumping forward a little, uh, Anotsu is in a, uh, uh, meeting with Habaki, a, a representative of the Shogunate who is, uh, who's offering to have, uh, Anotsu come be part of the sword school or, or have, uh, the Itoryu, uh, come be part of the sword school teaching, uh, ministers of the shogunate, which is a huge deal. And Inotsu agrees under the conditions that uh, the it is called Itoryu, and he is the master of the school. Yeah, he's like, no, <laughs> I invite you to let me take you over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which uh, Habaki uh, pretty much agrees to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, then Inotsu gets word that uh, Kuroi Sabato has been killed and sends a, another one of his uh, warriors to go find who who had the audacity to do this, uh, suspecting that it's probably the daughter that he left behind after killing the, the sword master. Uh, Ren finds her father's sword at a sword grinder's shop, uh, and it's picked up by... Uh, uh, Magatsu Taito, who is the spiky-haired 
masked guy we saw in the original in the first Itoru scene. Yeah, ninja guy. <laughs> yeah, ninja guy who seems he uh we have a very small character moment with him before now where he seems disgusted by everybody's actions uh regarding Ren's mother and instead uh goes and takes the the kind of showpiece sword from the dojo which Ren sees at this grinder shop and then uh Magatsu shows up to take it. Uh shortly thereafter Magatsu and Manji end up fighting in the woods <clears throat> where uh Magatsu reveals that he was that he hates samurai and the shogunate for having uh, mercilessly killed a friend of his while they were playing just because a ball started startled some horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and Manji, who is, is kind of crass reveals that he's not the only person with a sad backstory. And while he defeats Magatsu, he, he does not kill him. Um, and Magatsu later, uh, kind of gives this information that, the Manji is immortal because he had been mortally wounded, but kept fighting. Uh, then the next kind of, uh, uh, vignette we have is Manji and Ren are traveling and along the road, they, uh, Manji meets a Buddhist monk who reveals himself to be both a fellow member of Ito Ryu, but also another immortal like, uh, yeah like Manji, who has been alive for much longer and has found a, uh, shortly revealed, has found a poison that can uh, can negate the blood worms, suppress their effect, and with enough actually kill an immortal. Man, I love this guy. Yeah, his his voice is, I don't know, it it seems like a kind of trope thing, but I don't know where that that style of speaking is from, but his voice is very affected and interesting. He sounds like Bella Lugosi to me. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, this guy's an, a kabuki actor who's kind of transitioned into film and television. Um, Ichikawa Ebizo, the 11th, uh, is the actor's name. The 11th? Yeah. Wow. Is that X1, That's... right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's he's interesting. I've I've had, uh, I asked somebody and I, he, around about him and I've had a few things recommended to me. He was, the star of a NHK drama called Musashi, where he plays Musashi Miyamoto. Mm. And he's also in some movies, uh, Asthus of Riku and Harakiri, Death of a Samurai, which are both supposedly good. So I'm definitely curious to see. I'm sure he doesn't talk like this. I don't know. I, I would like to see if he, he does doesn't talk like this in the, his other roles, but I really loved it. <laughs> yeah, it's got a very interesting affect. And he has this kind of back and forth with Manji talking about being immortal and and wants him to wants Manji basically to take over the Itoryu because that means if if they're in charge the the Itoryu will live forever and uh it's it's the, the back and forth is pretty interesting because he he talks about like all the the lives he's lived in his hundreds of years on earth so far and which he also reveals that it was uh Yabikuni who cursed him as well with mm. the blood worms. Uh, he uh, disables Manji with the, uh, with the poison and kidnaps Ren 
and Trix ran into thinking that she too can become immortal for a brief second, which like after considering it, she tries, but it, it's a trick. He says that if, uh, if it were that easy, I wouldn't have lost all of the, all of my wives and friends. Um, but eventually, uh, Manji and, and, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Aiko. Oh, uh, Shizuma Aiko is the, the guy's name, Shizuma, and Manji fight each other, uh, which is, like, hilarious. Uh, because neither of them can die, they're all just kind of, like, stabbing and slashing each other with wild abandon. And yeah, there's a great, like, cut-to shot of of uh, Shizuma on top of uh, Manji with all of those swords that fell out of his sleeves all sticking through him. Yeah, very. there's there's some very good like gory slapstick stuff going on, and that's probably mm-hmm. the one that made me laugh out loud the most, just because of like Manji's expression on his face while this is going on, <laughs> and how absurdly uh, uh, how absurd it is. There's some other previous slapstick where he's like in in, in other fights where uh, Manji does a lot of kind of face acting about how much in pain he is and pulling things out of himself or. Eventually reattaching limbs. Yeah, I think that's where you really get the sort of Mike touch. Like, I I had the thought in watching this movie. Like, I wonder if the thing that attracted him to this is that the idea of that this is a concept where he can just kind of relentlessly hack away at a character. Um, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, uh, he's uh, he's done a few interviews with Western outlets where he kind of talked about his his penchant for violence in movies, but also how like how much fun he tries to make those those kinds mm. of violent scenes for his actors and how much fun it is for him. And that like, yeah, this was just an excuse to, to go crazy with a lot of that stuff because for certain characters, it would be consequence free. Yeah, totally. Um, so eventually, uh, uh, Shizuma whips out his poison, pours it all over his weird, uh, sword with the, with fur along the back of it, I guess, to hold the poison. And uh, Manji quickly wrests the sword from him and chops him up into like a dozen different pieces and sticks his torso to a tree, which the the shot for this, we get it from behind the tree at first where uh, Manji makes a, a dozen uh, cuts that all land and Shizuma is backed into the tree and then we just see like parts of him start falling away. Oh God! And, uh, yeah, I love I love the effect, by the way, of of once all the bloodworms like once that effect is nullified, just every single time you've been cut like that, just they just all the wounds open up. Yeah, they just start. Yeah, I didn't mention that earlier. Like all of Manji's scars start just gushing blood everywhere <laughs> when he's disabled. Yeah, it's rough. Um, But then uh, uh, Shizuma kind of reveals or. Manji, Manji asks why he didn't stop him. He could have blocked those blows. And, and Shizuma is, just talks about how he's tired of living and uh, basically decided to let himself die at this point. So his uh, next scene is uh, Manji and Ren are, are traveling to Fukugawa. Uh, we see other dead Itaruyu members and people kind of looting their corpses, but being polite about it, which is a little funny. 
uh, like commoners come up and steal their stuff, but then bow as they run away with it. Uh, we see all these dead Itaru members, and it's unclear. Like we didn't see these fights, and we don't know that that Manji killed them. But then we see two mysterious figures, who are uh, Kyakurin, the the blonde lady looks like Eno from Ryu, or Ryu from Eno from uh, Naruto. <laughs> yeah, and uh, which I I have to like, like. You have to assume that that some of that went into to that character sign, right? Sure. But uh, and but it's her and this bald guy with glasses who I think he, I could not find his name in the credits. Uh, the manga he's named Gichi. Yeah, he's very. He's one of the. I don't know of all the like outlandish designs and stuff. Something about like a dude with like small round glasses and like veins coming from them like just felt very manga to me. Um. Yeah, I agree. Chad. Like he's, I I was I was watching this. I'm like, this is, this is a this is a live action anime. If it weren't already, uh, <laughs> obvious that, that guy and the woman with like waist length blonde bleach blonde hair. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but they're just kind of standing off to the side, and we don't know exactly who they are yet. Uh, uh, Banji and Rin get to the city, and uh, Anotsu has gone to talk to. Another uh, another uh, friend of his uh, who was in the kind of like geisha quarter. And she shows up playing a, uh, I can't remember the name of the instrument. A shamisen? Yeah, playing a shamisen. And as uh, Manji and Ren walk by, Manji knows something is up and... As as they walk past, she eventually finishes playing and reveals uh, reveals herself to be another member of the Itoryu, uh, Makie, and has this uh, three-segmented staff with uh, blades on the ends of them. And this is probably my favorite fight scene in the movie, mm. just the way it's choreographed. She does a lot of, like, Flipping and flying around, the weapons are pretty interesting. And Manji seems to be like more outclassed in this in this scene than we've seen him in the rest of the movie. And yeah, uh, it's also kind of takes place in a tight space, which is interesting. Yeah, and it's it's clear he's still kind of under the effects of the the bloodworm poison, where it's not it hasn't stopped him from healing completely, but it's definitely suppressed his ability. Mm-hmm. So he's still like. His wounds aren't closing up like they used to and everything. So he is just getting demolished by this woman. And uh, the other thing I like about this is this is also the first time he he normally fights with two swords where he does the thing. He slips the the handle off one of them and makes it into this kind of like dual bladed uh, uh, thing that's kind of I, I enjoy. Yeah. Darth Maul sword. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> um but uh eventually uh Makia has has something that kind of snaps in her and Rin shows up and she's after cutting off Manji's hand, Makia is snaps out of it and is disgusted by the violence and death that she causes and wants to kind of leave that life and 
uh, Rin shows up and is like trying to defend Manji and is super angry and gives a speech that gives Maki a, a change of heart who, and she spares them and then uh, goes to Inotsu, apologizes through a door to him and then disappears, leaving her, uh, uh, she has cut off her hair and left a ponytail behind for Inotsu. So uh, I, I couldn't remember where exactly this scene fit in. When uh, Anotsu receives word from the Shogun, or receives word uh, by Habaki, mm-hmm. that uh, the Swordsmaster to the Shogun, like the, the family themselves, wants to submit to Itoryu. Uh So this is like the, the most, the highest, most important sword school in the land, and the uh, and he wants to become part of the the Itoryu, which is a huge deal which things are starting to kind of seem a little too good to be true to the viewer by this point yeah um and uh so Anotsu is going to go to Mount Takao where this uh, sword school is to speak with the, the sword master himself uh at this point uh, we learned that Yichi and Hyakuren are uh, part of another organization, the Mugairyu, who try to recruit Manji, who is skeptical at first, but decides to join up because they have good sake. <laughs> yeah, he notes but, that it's expensive. Yeah. And so they know that they have a spy on the inside, so they know Anotsu is traveling to Mount Takao. And they split up to try to catch him as he's leaving the city. Uh, Kakarin and Gishi go their own way, and uh, Manji is teamed up with uh, uh, Shira, who is another uh, swordsman of theirs. Uh, as they try to, uh, Manji, Rin, and Shira go to to one exit of the city and see somebody. They've been told he's going to be trying to leave the city, looking like uh, a woman. They see a mysterious woman who looks to be armed with uh, with Notsu's kind of signature axe weapon, and Shira attacks her, and it just it's just a woman, but it's all a setup because then swordsmen show up from all over the place and are pretty easily defeated. And uh, Manji uh, effortlessly, pretty effortlessly, defeats these these nobodies. Shira screams out that uh, how much they're worth as bounties, which kind of raises Manji's eyebrows. Mm. And uh, Shira then, as as Manji is is fighting the rest of the swordsmen, uh, decides to have his way with the uh, with the woman that was masquerading as Notsu. Rin takes offense to this and tries to protect the woman. Shira beats her up, and then Manji. Uh, as uh, Shira's about to attack Rin, chops off Shira's hand, and then apologizes for it, <laughs> pretending That's like a he great, missed. Like moment with this sort of like clean cut <laughs> hand suddenly falling off. Uh, yeah, I really love that shot. Yeah, and he looks so inconvenienced. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Shira turns out to be a psychopath, and uh. 
they fight for a second. Shira flees in in anger and shame. Uh, uh, Manji is disgusted that the Mugairu are actually bounty hunters and reveals his disgust to Gichi and Hyakurin. And it's revealed that the Mugairu are actually uh, death row inmates who are, are recruited by the Shogunate to be kind of like black ops people. Mm-hmm. And it's my understanding that in the manga, he he keeps a pretty good relationship with the rest of the Mugairu. It's just uh, Shira specifically that he takes issue with. I could see that. Mm. Sounds like the Mugairu are some sort of suicide squad. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, so uh, after this, Rin is out in the woods near Manji's house. I can't remember if she's like getting wood or what, but sees uh, Anotsu there just hanging out, practicing his weapons. And she shows up and you think she's going to try to fight him. But Anotsu actually tells the story of, of his and Ren's grandparents, where uh, Ren's great-grandfather was the master of the school, and it was between those two to determine who became the, the new master of the school. And Anotsu's grandfather, even though he was a better swordsman and in protecting the great-grandfather, killed more bandits or rivals or whoever, uh, because he used a quote barbarian's weapon in the axe, he uh, he was disgraced and kicked from the school, and did not get to become the next master of it. And so this kind of recontextualizes how Ren feels about this whole situation because uh, Anotsu was actually seeking his own vengeance on on Ren's. Uh, Rin's family, and while it's not quite the same as seeking vengeance on your murdered father directly to the person who did it, it's, she she kind of thinks twice about what's going on. And yeah, she's like conflicted, you know. Still, she's been harboring that hatred for him for so long, you know. I think she she doesn't just instantly throw it away, but now she's kind of like stopped in her tracks. Yeah, I think uh, when when. Uh, Kuroi Saboto shows up. She's she says he's been writing love letters for her for two years. So there's some time passed between when her father is killed and when she actually uh, goes to find Manji. So she's been kind of ruminating on this vengeance. It's it's uh, not fresh, but it's been simmering for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so she returns to to Manji's house, but and Manji's like, what's up? And she refuses to say anything. And then uh, later disappears, leaving a note for Manji kind of freeing him from her service because he, she doesn't want him, uh, him kind of uh, living this terrible life. Thinks it's cruel, which is weird. Um, The, the, Movie goes some strange places towards the end. Uh, but uh, so she leaves going after Notsu and Manji realizes this and goes after Rin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when Notsu gets to Mount Takao, the, the sword master 
uh, reveals that he, uh, she says, disregard that letter and basically won't say anything else. And uh, at this point, we know that the, the Shogunate is actually plotting against the Itoryu. So we know that Matakawa is a trap. As Anoto is leaving, a bunch of swordsmen show up trying to kill him. And he slaughters dozens of them and starts to flee. As he's fleeing is when Ren shows up and uh, kind of threatens him. But uh, And then he's like, no, we should probably both run. And so they they keep there. There's brief spurts of him fighting swordsmen until they get to this abandoned city, and it's just hundreds and hundreds of swordsmen and samurai, kind of cornering them. And as uh, the the Habaki tells them to to kill Ren for being kind of impudent in the way of them trying to kill Onotsu, and as they're about to try to kill Ren, Manji shows up. Or wait, no, there's a. I skipped the scene before this. He's ambushed by uh, by bandits in the woods on his way there, mm-hmm. where his uh, his bloodworms begin to fail him completely, and he's had one hand uh, trapped, and he cut it off himself to to free himself from the trap. But then there's one uh, one enemy left. He his other arm gets cut in a way he can't use it, and it won't reattach itself. And he sits there like demanding it does and Yobikuni kind of shows up it's unclear if it's some kind of vision or magic projection or what but it's kind of asking him what he's doing because he's he had been just living he once once Machi died and he became immortal he had no real reason to live and was just kind of loitering I guess and now that he cares about Machi or Machi or now that he cares about Ren he finally has a new reason to keep going and, and for the first time in a long time actually wants to live and eventually kind of wills his blood worms back into working again, stitching the arm on and uh, killing the last swordsman. Uh, and, and then after that is when he shows up last second to save Ren. And then we have uh, this incredibly long sequence of Manji and Anotsu just murdering hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of enemies <laughs> yeah and uh yeah it's it's hilarious just like it it did eventually get to be tiring to me how long the sequence went on because they're just relentlessly killing so many people um the choreography is is even though it's this big crowd scene the choreography is still pretty good um, yeah, and our you know it's so well designed to like our main characters stand out so much amongst everyone else that um, you can follow who's who very easily. Yeah, and you uh, you and it's still uh, very distinct the way that Manji fights versus the Ray, the way Anotsu fights with his like weird sword and that big brutal axe. It really gives kind. of it, it really communi- the way he fights with it communicates how heavy and mm-hmm. and brutal that thing is. Um, as the, as they're fighting, uh, uh, Shiro shows up. Who his hair has turned completely white. And he has vowed vengeance on Manji, so he kidnaps Ren to uh, to draw off Manji and get his revenge. Uh, Anotsu is 
starting to kind of get fatigued and has, has been hit a few times when suddenly uh, Makie shows up to, to rescue him and uh, they're fighting side by side being badass. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Manji runs to where Shira is, finds him. He's tied up uh, Ren and Manji manages to, he throws all of his weapons down a well, thinking back to the last time somebody said, throw down your weapons and I'll free her. So he knows that that he's this is not a solution to the problem. But he throws all those weapons down, but he has one last dagger from when uh, Rin accidentally hit him with her like weird dagger-throwing move. <laughs> yeah, I like how, I mean, I don't know. I kind of like how bad she is. Like, I like how much she's, like, willing to go for it uh, in attacking her enemies, even though she's unskilled at it. And so she has this, like, weird signature move where she, like, holds a bunch of knives in her hands and throws them forward. And it never really works. And it was pretty funny when one actually hits him uh, it's, earlier. Yeah, it's really funny because it's like a fighting game super move where she's got this kind of like wind up where she does she holds them back and does a pose for half a second before she actually throws them yeah and yeah the one time she actually hits people with it she also hits manji and he but he holds on to it and so he frees her with this and uh gets the drop on shira says i can kill you even if i'm unarmed and they both kind of roll down a hill and shira is left hanging onto a a vine over a waterfall. Uh, they they have some words back and forth, and sure. Uh, I should mention his arm, right? His his disgusting bone. Oh blade. yeah, it, where he is, he is kind of like cut his arm down to the point where bones are actually sticking out, and he is uh, he's stabbed Ren with this. His hair's um, white now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the the bone arm is is really, really like body horror, gross looking. Um, but co- in a, in a very cool way. And, uh, sadly it doesn't factor in much, <clears throat> but, uh, as it, he, he vows to chase Manji forever, no matter what happens. And Manji cuts him. He falls, she falls down the waterfall and there's this explosion of blood. (laughs) Yeah. There's that sort of like rule of like, if someone falls off a cliff and especially into water, you're like, Oh, didn't see the body. I don't know. They might live like this one. It's like indisputable. He just exploded. (laughs) Yeah. It's so good. Which I I think in the manga, he actually, uh, seeks revenge and gets bloodworms himself and becomes oh. another immortal. So it's funny that like they're subverting, I guess, expectations by just having him explode. It's so good. Um, oh God, that's funny. Uh, back with, uh, Anotsu and, and, uh, Mikie or Makie, uh, they're, they've managed to slaughter everybody around them. Hub, Habaki, who is the leader of these guys has just been like, eating rice balls the whole time, just sitting down having his lunch while he watches all of his men get slaughtered. And uh, he's just sitting there finishing his last rice ball, and they look at him when all of a sudden Makie realizes she smells gunpowder and looks over and sees basically a gun line and takes the bullets for Inotsu, runs over and 
kills all the gunmen, but not before she takes a fatal number of shots herself and uh, falls dead. Uh, and then we have a pretty cool sword fight between Anotsu and Habaki, uh, where in, in the end, Habaki is chopped in half, but refuses to die and keeps crawling to retrieve his sword to fight before he finally passes out and dies. And immediately following this is when Manji and Ren show back up and have kind of a, a stare down with Anotsu. And this this part of the movie, I'm the this ending part, I'm not 100% down with just because of the weird pacing of it. Hmm. Uh, because uh, Ren is very clearly conflicted about all of this and is trying to decide, I guess, whether to let Notsu go or not. But she, she's eventually like, uh, wants Manji to kill him. And the, then we have the, finally have our proper fight between Notsu and, and Manji. And at the end, when Manji is, has, uh, disabled Notsu, he, he saves the killing blow for Ren and beckons her over to, to deliver it. She takes the sword and points it at him. And then just stands there for like five minutes, not doing it. Which I understand that that she's supposed to feel conflicted. She hasn't actually killed anyone before, and and has conflicted feelings. But the pacing on this is so drawn out, and it takes so long. And then mm-hmm. he slowly gets up and walks away uh, with his axe. And then she decides to finally kill him, running at him. Uh, and Manji jumps in to take the inevitable attack from the from the axe as he spins around to defend himself and then there's another like long beat before she finally stabs him with with the weapon and Anotsu dies but it looks like Manji's bloodworms have finally like given their last protecting him protecting Ren and he uh he falls over seemingly dead and she's like crying and shaking him uh, begging for him to come back and says, uh, begs him to, to not be dead and calls him Nichan, which is a callback to earlier in the movie when uh, he clarified what uh, his sister actually called him. And he, he Manji, uh, revives enough to say, it's, it's Nisama, you idiot. <laughs> Uh, showing that he is still alive, and then the film ends. And yeah. we are we are given this terrible, terrible song. I like Miyavi. That that was horrible. Yeah, given um, uh, Kimura's you know pop star roots, I thought that that was him or something at first. But um, no, yeah. Um, it's it's the, if anybody has played uh, the the Wolfenstein game that came out last year, that it's almost on par with the ending song from that and how like kind of disjointed it is with the rest of the scene. Mm. Um. So yeah, what is uh what was everybody's reactions to seeing the movie, Joey? Um, I I liked it. Um, 
I, I think it's real fun. I, I've said this before, but I, I have sort of solidified my take <laughs> as that this is Takashi Miike's Marvel movie <laughs> because mm. it's like this isn't a, you know, exactly a one to one comparison. But I think it's a similar situation to what Marvel's been doing where they kind of like nab these directors who have very strong sensibilities, but then sort of rein them in to fit their product for better or worse. Um, and I think in this case, for me personally, it worked better because I don't, I'm not a huge fan of when Mika goes like way out, you know, to yeah. the sort of high side of, of, uh, violence and, and, and depravity or whatever. So like, I kind of like this, uh, this kind of like slightly reined in, but still like obviously, uh, passionate, uh, Mike, um, as you were saying. And the other film comparison that I made uh, watching this was it reminded me a lot of True Grit. Um, you know, it has the similar sort of setup of this young girl who's, you know, in some ways strong in her own right, at least like strong willed, uh, but maybe not quite enough to get the revenge she's seeking enlisting this like, uh, you know, <laughs> boozy, grumpy old dude to help her. And then they sort of form a strong bond uh, despite their initial friction and I don't know, I, this is a strong formula that works well for me. So I kind of like like that in that way. And and the thing that stands out a lot for me in this movie is the performances. Like, I really, I thought Kimura was great as Manji. And as we were talking earlier, uh, Sugisaki is really great as Rin. Uh, she's a really great yeller. <laughs> she's yeah. very good at, like, being angry and saying, you know, you know, whoever she's yelling at is is very compelling, you know, <laughs> and very believable. It's not like it's it, when you get up into that kind of register, it can be hard to stay like feel serious mm -hmm. or, or feel real. And yeah, yeah she's she's definitely good at, at capturing that. And like the, the face acting that she does is very good as well. Yeah. And very convincing uh, playing much younger uh, than she is. Apparently it's interesting. Um, I don't know. What did you think, Alex? Yeah, uh, my first thought was that this is the most toned-down Mikkei movie I think I've ever seen. Um, it was way less violent than I was expecting it to be, like, by a lot. Mm -hmm. And it was still yeah. pretty violent. So, um, and I, yeah, I actually expected it to be a little more weird, too. Um, the one guy, uh, Sabato, uh, that's the kind of character that you typically see in a lot of Mikkei movies. Like this guy who's composed but like super creepy and you don't know why. That's the guy with the heads on his shoulders, right? Yeah. yeah the Are you kind of surprised that they never became unwrapped? Like, he lets yeah. his mom peek out a little bit. Yeah. But that's it. But I feel so like another Mikkei from, you know, 10 years ago or maybe with a different film or something we would have seen these gaping, gross, decayed oh, absolutely. heads. Yeah, that's, yeah, 100%. Does he unwrap the heads in the manga? I don't remember. <laughs> mm. Sorry. But yeah, uh, overall, I really liked it. I thought the pacing was really well done. Um, I, I couldn't, the one thing that confused me about the movie was a period of time or if they were actually going on a journey mm. because they kept coming back to... Uh, to Manji's little shack. Mm -hmm. Like, I couldn't tell how much time had passed in the movie, really. 
Um, not that that yeah. matters, of course, some in, in in movies like this, but uh, that was just one thing that I um that I had just kind of thought about. Um, I thought the fights were really cool. Uh, yeah, it's it's a. Uh, I would I don't know I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody who <laughs> likes these types of movies, um, but is but is also wary of. Uh, of Mike's track record, like, like Joey usually is. Yeah. It's very interesting. I do agree that like, I like a lot of what Mike does, but his more far out things are things where I wish he had an editor. So I do wish there was a little more gore and slapstick in this because I think those are areas that he excels. But, uh, but overall I'm glad that he seems kind of reined in and I don't know if it was like, if, I assume that was not a studio thing. I think it's just him trying to be very true to the original property. Yeah, and this makes kind me of kept very him on track. to see his JoJo's movie that recently oh, yeah. came out or is coming out or something because I feel like it may be a similar tone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because uh, Blade of the Immortal is, uh, I'm not that familiar with it, but it's my understanding that it's still a pretty like heavy, violent gory manga so he probably had the leeway to get a little wilder with it than he did but mm-hmm. but it's still pretty pretty in line but like i said i i like him being more constrained because there's still like some signature things from him in there and and there is a lot of of gory slapstick just less than i expected uh, I was really surprised that most of the more gory or silly things actually made it into the trailer. Hmm. Um, yeah. And that was some of the most, most outlandish stuff. And then the, the other things that happened in the movie, aside from uh, Shira's like creepy bone arm, there wasn't a whole lot that, that was surprising or shocking. Yeah, kind of thing that I remember uh, making a big impact on me from the trailer is that scene where he loses his hand and it's kind of hooked up at, up in up the hill up on a tree mm-hmm. and then has to pull it down. And I feel like that played actually better in the trailer than in the, in the scene. It was just kind of like, it didn't really have much impact, but like as a sort of like comedy gore moment, it worked really yeah. well in that trailer. <laughs> yeah. I felt yeah. the same way. There's it, it doesn't feel like a punchline in the movie the way it does in a trailer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really love this movie. Uh, like I said, I, I've got some issues with the pacing right at the end with with just how long that stuff gets drawn out with uh, Anotsu. But, uh, and and maybe the when they're killing the hundreds of, of samurai swordsmen, that, that drags a little to me as well. Um, even though, like I said, it's, it's consistently well done throughout. I just wish there's maybe like a minute or so less of it. Um, I but feel yeah, like I that's loved something it. Something that it has in common with Thirteen Assassins, that last battle scene, uh, is very long and arduous as well, <laughs> um, which you know has its own effect. Uh, you know, but um, but yeah, I, I really love the, as you said, the kind of like true grit trope of a grizzled older man having a kind of paternal relation or or fraternal relationship with this uh, strong-willed younger woman. Uh, reminded me specifically because uh his his power is immortality and regeneration reminded me a lot of logan mm. uh, as yeah. well and yeah i kept thinking about wolverine throughout the, the whole movie um but yeah i was i was uh really surprised both at 
uh, how toned down it was, but in, in a kind of good way, but also how beautiful it was. Mm-hmm. Like I know I, when I think of, of Mike, I think of his movies as being very interesting and dynamic. And this one was, uh, was not there. There are some dynamic parts of it, but a lot of the movie is kind of like wide frame shots kind of far away from the actors. And, uh, the, I was really impressed because like after a hundred movies, it's very obvious that he has built up a kind of, uh, wide variety of skills as a director and has learned how to use them very well. But, uh, cause yeah, this is outside of what I expect from his oeuvre, but it's still like really, really well shot, beautiful scenery. A lot of the, the colors and use of color, uh, yeah, super I vibrant. a lot of these sort of shots where some, someone, is sort of posed, yeah, in this wide shot as you're describing, and then it kind of zooms in on them or zooms out from them uh, as they're talking, and it feels very deliberate. But yeah, did uh, did so, uh, Alex? Did you have any particularly favorite uh, parts of the movie you wanted to highlight? Yeah. Um, <laughs> while I love uh, you know all the fight scenes and stuff like that, I man, God, I burst out laughing when Shira died um, when he falls and hits the waterfall and that explosion of blood it wasn't just the explosion of blood but he also just goes ah <laughs> I don't know that was like incredibly comical yeah and I I had to pause the movie because I was laughing so hard he's a great like hateable villain and it, it was a fittingly kind of pathetic uh, death mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah like out of all the scenes i could have chosen i could have chosen something like way way cooler like like a like a better choreographed fight scene but uh when i think of that movie the, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is just that giant splatter <laughs> of blood and him scream and just him just ah <laughs> it, it was so corny but like it was like mm, chef kiss perfect mm-hmm. uh joey what was yours uh, my favorite was uh, Eiku Shizuma, the other immortal uh, played by Ichikawa Ebizo the 11th, as we mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, I just really loved his strange speech uh, style, for sure. So that's something that we touched on a little bit. Like, that weird Dracula voice is so funny, especially <laughs> for a, yeah. like, immortal. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily what he was going for, but that's what it read to me as, <laughs> um, and I just found it very compelling. I definitely remember, like, after seeing it for the first time, that being one of the main things that stood out to me to the point where I was kind of looking into who that actor was and stuff. But I also just love that whole s- scene surrounding them and the relationship between him and Manji because uh, they have this interesting camaraderie um, and it you know the the fight between them has lasting repercussions with the the poison and stuff and kind of also checks off this like you know question box you might have like okay manji's this immortal person are there other immortal people walking around and um it's interesting that they're connected by the same uh you know mysterious person giving the blood worms around but um uh but yeah, I just, I just really, that's my favorite part for sure is that whole mm-hmm. scene because I love him so much. Yeah. I also like that he's got this, like they, they did 
face makeup on him to make him look kind of super pale with sunken eyes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that was kind of just because of to, to illustrate his world weariness or if that was something to, or if that's just how he looked in the, in the manga or what. Yeah. He's got like long white hair and he's a sort of wandering monk. Uh, Didn't he say, where did he say that he got the bloodworms like in India or something? Or he, uh, he got Tibet. the poison in Tibet. Oh, Tibet, yeah. So, like, it, it gives you this idea that, yeah, he's just sort of this sort of, like, interesting international, like, this internationally traveling monk guy who, uh, even even before he got the uh, um, blood worms, you know, had an interesting life, but since then is just sort of eternally wandering around uh, being a weirdo. <laughs> yeah, and she... He just looks so kind of otherworldly, mm-hmm. which is appropriate. Um, my favorite part, uh, so I, I like that scene a lot uh, and, and was thinking about talking about it, but uh, my other favorite part is, like I said, the fight with uh, Maki. Just because of like how it's shot, there's a lot of interesting kind of slow-mo as she twirls around with that fascinating mm-hmm. weapon of hers the the segmented staff and everything uh it also has one of the like kind of best gory it's not not gory but like most brutal kind of things when he's uh manji is has lost track of her which happens repeatedly uh he's lost track of her and has his back to a, a wall when suddenly just her weapon bursts through his chest then rotates and plunges back out as just like made me cringe a little bit <laughs> with how like thinking about how gross that would be. And uh yeah, that that scene is just so cool. She looks really interesting in her in her like vibrant dress. Yeah. And she she also has uh kind of strange makeup with like uh kind of uh white powder along her neck and chin. Oh yeah, that's sort of like courtesan look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I, I just I just like that scene a lot. That's my favorite fight. I like I'm I'm a little sad because at the very end he like pulls out his his uh kind of cool pole arm, yet another Darth Maul looking double bladed uh staff thing. And uh, but uh he doesn't really get much of a chance to use it very long before he's he's disabled. Yeah. But uh I like that it ends with Reen protecting him too. Um yeah. with the you know, touching scene um and just uh it, the other thing i wanted to highlight was like once again how beautifully a lot of these uh scenes are framed uh, i didn't see any standout stuff from the director of photography although i think he also worked on 13 assassins mm. um but yeah it's just just shocked at how pretty the, the movie actually was when i didn't really go in expecting it, but like I said, after a hundred movies, you should. Uh, I'm I'm not surprised that Mika has mastery over a bunch of different stuff than just the things I know him for. Yeah. Uh, anything? Any other uh, wrap up on the movie you guys want to get to? No, I I, I enjoyed this one. I'm, I was happy to see it again. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I was I was super happy to see it for the first time. I was a little wary. Uh, just because it was Mike, and then like like you said, because of how it f- felt kind of reined in, I was surprised at, at uh, how much I I 
really did like it. And uh, as as Alex said, he feel free to recommend it to people, which it's very unusual to be able to recommend somebody a Takashi Miike movie without <laughs> some kind of like caveat or reservations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a crowd pleaser. Like, yeah. I, again, going back to the Marvel movie thing, you know, it's more violent and extreme than a Marvel movie, but in the spectrum of, of Miike films for sure. But even Japanese films, like, I feel like depending on who you're talking to, this is a pretty easy one to recommend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So uh, what are we doing next time? Next time, uh, a a personal favorite of mine, and I guess you could call it a crowd favorite. It's 2000's Battle Royale, directed by Kinji Fukusaku. Um, I've been looking forward to doing this one since we actually started the podcast, simply because Battle Royale is such a well-known um and uh, I would probably say uh, kind of a first-timer um, hmm. Japanese film. Yeah, man. It's been forever since I've seen this one uh, because yeah. of that. Yeah. Probably yeah, saw it around then, 2000, 2001, something like that. Yeah, I definitely remember getting a, a burned CD with this with some fan <laughs> subs on it, probably like in 2001 while I was still in high school. So yeah, yeah. it is... And and I haven't I've watched it maybe once since then so uh, I'm excited about uh, watching a movie where Chiaki Kurs- uh, Kuriyama yeah. actually has yeah. something to do on screen. Mm. So. <laughs> yeah, and how? Yeah, <laughs> great. Um, well, I guess we can go into plugs, right? That's yep. Uh, if you're uh, if you're looking for me, I am at. Vriska chat on Twitter, V R I S K A C H A T. Uh, not a lot going on right now, but uh, hit me up there if you want to talk about Japanese film, video games, or anything. Uh, Alex, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at dude exclamation, all one word. And um, a little bit of a plug for a, a Twitter account that um, it's pretty cool. Uh, I have no idea who runs it, but it's called Weeb Simpsons. <laughs> And uh, if you like um, anything remotely relating to Japanese culture and The Simpsons, this is the Twitter feed for you. They even made a Torasan joke once. I know, weird. <laughs> <laughs> Joey, uh, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm at Joey Weiser on Twitter and joeyweiser.tumblr.com, uh, where I post information about my comics work. I'm a cartoonist, the author of the Merman. Uh, graphic novel series which volumes one through five are out now uh, volume four just came out in soft cover with a soft cover for five coming later this year um if you're in the athens georgia area look for me march 24th uh, at the fluke uh mini comics festival in athens georgia uh it's a really fun thing and there's a lot of uh really great people uh with small press and mini comics and stuff uh displaying there um also hey this podcast has a some social media as well. Uh, we've got a Twitter account at Tohoyaro, and you can also like us on Facebook. Um, Facebook, uh, we post about upcoming episodes and um, when the new episode drops and stuff. And on Twitter, we do a lot of like uh, retweeting, uh, people talking about Japanese film, information about releases, uh, things like that. Uh, so definitely hit us up and 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 tweet at us and comment on Facebook to let us know like what you think of the show. And if you have suggestions for movies, you'd like us to cover things like that. We really love to hear that kind of feedback. 
Um, and speaking of feedback, you can uh, rate us on iTunes and possibly other uh, podcast software that has rating abilities. Uh, so yeah, subscribe and rate. It would make us, uh, it helps the show a lot. It not only kind of makes us feel better and lets us know that you're enjoying the show, but like it helps spread the word. All right. Thanks everybody. We'll catch you next time with Battle Royale. Bye.